Chapter 36 of White Jacket, or The World in a Man of War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. White Jacket, or The World in a Man of War, by Herman Melville. Chapter 36. Flogging not necessary. But White Jacket is ready to come down from the lofty masthead of an eternal principle, and fight you, Commodores and Captains of the Navy, on your own quarter-deck, with your own weapons, at your own paces. Exempt yourselves from the lash. You take Bible oaths to it that it is indispensable for others. You swear that, without the lash, no armed ship can be kept in suitable discipline. Be it proved to you, officers, and stamped upon your foreheads, that herein you are utterly wrong. Send them to Collingwood, said Lord Nelson, and he will bring them to order. This was the language of that renowned admiral when his officers reported to him certain seamen of the fleet as wholly ungovernable. Send them to Collingwood. And who was Collingwood, that, after these navy rebels had been imprisoned and scourged without being brought to order, Collingwood could convert them to docility? Who Admiral Collingwood was, as an historical hero, history herself will tell you, nor, in whatever triumphal hall they may be hanging, will the captured flags of Trafalgar fail to rustle at the mention of that name. But what Collingwood was as a disciplinarian on board the ships he commanded perhaps needs to be said. He was an officer, then, who held in abhorrence all corporal punishment, who, though seeing more active service than any sea officer of his time, yet for years together, governed his men without inflicting the lash. But these seamen of his must have been most exemplary saints to have proved docile under so lenient a sway. Were they saints? Answer, ye jails and almshouses, throughout the length and breadth of Great Britain, which, in Collingwood's time, were swept clean of the last lingering villain and pauper to man his majesty's fleets. Still more, that was a period when the uttermost resources of England were taxed to the quick, when the masts of her multiplied fleets almost transplanted her forests, all standing to the sea, when British press-gangs not only boarded foreign ships on the high seas and boarded foreign pierheads, but boarded their own merchantmen at the mouth of the Thames and boarded the very firesides along its banks, when Englishmen were knocked down and dragged into the navy like cattle into the slaughterhouse with every mortal provocation to a mad desperation against the service that thus ran their unwilling heads into the muzzles of the enemy's cannon. This was the time, and these the men that Collingwood governed without the lash. I know it has been said that Lord Collingwood began by inflicting severe punishments, and afterward ruling his sailors by the mere memory of a bygone terror, which he could at pleasure revive, and that his sailors knew this, and hence their good behavior under a lenient sway. But, granting the quoted assertion to be true, 
How comes it that many American captains who, after inflicting as severe punishment as ever Collingwood could have authorized, how comes it that they, also, have not been able to maintain good order without subsequent floggings after once showing to the crew with what terrible attributes they were invested? But it is notorious, and a thing that I myself in several instances know to have been the case, that in the American Navy, where corporal punishment has been most severe, it has also been most frequent. But it is incredible that, with such crews as Lord Collingwood's, composed, in part, of the most desperate characters, the rakings of the jails, it is incredible that such a set of men could have been governed by the mere memory of the lash. Some other influence must have been brought to bear, mainly, no doubt, the influence wrought by a powerful brain and a determined, intrepid spirit over a miscellaneous rabble. It is well known that Lord Nelson himself, in point of policy, was averse to flogging, and that, too, when he had witnessed the mutinous effects of government abuses in the Navy, unknown in our times, and which, to the terror of all England, developed themselves at the great mutiny of the Noray, an outbreak that for several weeks jeopardized the very existence of the British Navy. But we may press this thing nearly two centuries further back, for it is a matter of historical doubt whether, in Robert Blake's time, Cromwell's great admiral, such a thing as flogging was known at the gangways of his victorious fleets. And as in this matter we cannot go further back than to Blake, so we cannot advance further than to our own time, which shows Commodore Stockton, during the recent war with Mexico, governing the American squadron in the Pacific without employing the scourge. But if of three famous English admirals, one has aboard flogging, another almost governed his ships without it, and to the third it may be supposed to have been unknown, while an American commander has, within the present year, almost been enabled to sustain the good discipline of an entire squadron in time of war without having an instrument of scourging on board. What inevitable inferences must be drawn, and how disastrous to the mental character of all advocates of Navy flogging, who may happen to be Navy officers themselves. It cannot have escaped the discernment of any observer of mankind that, in the presence of its conventional inferiors, conscious imbecility in power often seeks to carry off that imbecility by assumptions of lordly severity. The amount of flogging on board an American man-of-war is, in many cases, in exact proportion to the professional and intellectual incapacity of her officers to command. Thus, in these cases, the law that authorizes flogging does but put a scourge into the hand of a fool. In most calamitous instances, this has been shown. It is a matter of record that some English ships of war have fallen a prey to the enemy through the insubordination of the crew, induced by the witless cruelty of their officers, officers so armed by the law that they could inflict that cruelty without restraint. Nor have there been wanting instances where the seamen have ran away with their ships, as in the case of the Hermione and Danae, and forever rid themselves of the outrageous inflictions of their officers by sacrificing their lives to their fury. Events like these aroused the attention of the British public at the time 
but it was a tender theme, the public agitation of which the government was anxious to suppress. Nevertheless, whenever the thing was privately discussed, these terrific mutinies, together with the then-prevailing insubordination of the men in the Navy, were almost universally attributed to the exasperating system of flogging, and the necessity for flogging was generally believed to be directly referable to the impressment of such crowds of dissatisfied men. And in high quarters it was held that if, by any mode, the English fleet could be manned without resource to coercive measures, then the necessity of flogging would cease. If we abolish either impressment or flogging, the abolition of the other will follow as a matter of course. This was the language of the Edinburgh Review at a still later period, 1824. If, then, the necessity of flogging in the British armed marine was solely attributed to the impressment of the seamen, what faintest shadow of reason is there for the continuance of this barbarity in the American service, which is wholly freed from the reproach of impressment? It is true that, during a long period of non-impressment, and even down to the present day, flogging has been, and still is, the law of the English navy. But in things of this kind, England should be nothing to us except an example to be shunned. Nor should wise legislators wholly govern themselves by precedence and conclude that, since scourging has so long prevailed, some virtue must reside in it. Not so. The world has arrived at a period which renders it the part of wisdom to pay homage to the prospective precedents of the future in preference to those of the past. The past is dead and has no resurrection, but the future is endowed with such a life that it lives to us even in anticipation. The past is, in many things, the foe of mankind. The future is, in all things, our friend. In the past is no hope. The future is both hope and fruition. The past is the textbook of tyrants, the future the Bible of the free. Those who are solely governed by the past stand like Lot's wife, crystallized in the act of looking backward and forever incapable of looking before. Let us leave the past, then, to dictate laws to immovable China. Let us abandon it to the Chinese legitimists of Europe. But for us, we will have another captain to rule over us, that captain who ever marches at the head of his troop and beckons them forward, not lingering in the rear, and impeding their march with lumbering baggage wagons of old precedents. This is the past. But in many things we Americans are driven to a rejection of the maxims of the past, seeing that, ere long, the van of the nations must, of right, belong to ourselves. There are occasions when it is for America to make precedents and not to obey them. We should, if possible, prove a teacher to posterity instead of being the pupil of bygone generations. More shall come after us than have gone before. The world is not yet middle-aged. Escaped from the house of bondage, Israel of old did not follow after the ways of the Egyptians. To her was given an express dispensation— to her were given new things under the sun, and we Americans are the peculiar, chosen people, the Israel of our time, 
we bear the ark of the liberties of the world. Seventy years ago, we escaped from thrall, and besides our first birthright, embracing one continent of earth, God has given to us, for a future inheritance, the broad domains of the political pagans, that shall yet come and lie down under the shade of our ark, without bloody hands being lifted. God has predestinated, mankind expects, great things from our race, and great things we feel in our souls. The rest of the nations must soon be in our rear. We are the pioneers of the world, the advance guard, sent on through the wilderness of untried things, to break a new path in the new world that is ours. In our youth is our strength, in our inexperience our wisdom. At a period when other nations have but lisped, our deep voice is heard afar. Long enough have we been skeptics with regard to ourselves, and doubted whether, indeed, the political Messiah had come. But he has come in us, if we would but give utterance to his promptings, and let us always remember that with ourselves, almost for the first time in the history of earth, national selfishness is unbounded philanthropy. For we cannot do a good to America, but we give alms to the world. End of chapter 36 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.